This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. I am a big uh, proponent of marriage. I think it's incredible. I think it's great. I think it's the one of the great fundamental uh resources we have in our lives to grow healthier, happier families, healthier, happier uh, people. It's, it's, it's essential to our lives and to a healthy life. And as our researcher just taught us, uh, Dr. Christy Williams, in the lower economic strata of, of our society, all marriages are not created equal, right? So if, if a 19 to 24-year-old person gets pregnant Historically, we'd say you got to marry. You got to marry the man. Marry the man that you know makes it legit. Now we've got a legitimate thing going on here, and then all of a sudden we suppose that that would then all of a sudden pull them out of the financial hole. And the problem is, it's not the reality they're finding. They're finding that it doesn't necessarily increase or create long-term health for the mother in economic uh, with economic struggles. So. It's, it might be a myth to just automatically push marriage. Now, we should probably be pushing, well, let's not get pregnant, right? That should be pushed. But again, because of whatever reasons and accidents or, you know, things happen that all of a sudden yet you're pregnant – one of the things we probably ought to do is make sure we're evaluating each situation one-on-one. What is the 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 educational and the mental and the intellectual abilities of the people involved that are going to be parenting? What are the uh, financial implications? What What is their earning ability? What educational level have they attained? What resources do they have available to them? It's, these are all important parts of the decision. And there are people that would love to adopt if you want to give the child up. There are parents begging, praying, crying for opportunities to adopt. And so um, marriage may not always be the answer in those situations because, again, who is the father? What are the, what are the opportunities of the father being able to make it? What is the father's support level at getting out so, you know, it used to make more sense, and I think it used to make more sense as a solution because we were in a different culture. We were in a different environment where we could just say, you know, you ought to stay married or you ought to get married if you get pregnant. And that made sense in, in smaller town kind of Christian-supported cultures and environments because you had a tight-knit group maybe more around you. But in inner-city, difficult, financially-strained situations— it doesn't necessarily lead to health. Uh, and if it doesn't lead to health for the mother, it probably won't lead to health for the child. It might lead to abuse and, and other situations. So be careful when we think about our answers from 20, 30 years ago being the only answer today. Um, there are more options and more choices that are healthy um, that, again, there are people that would love to raise your child in a, in a marriage. Um, if if that has to happen as well. So let me give you some other things we want to blow up, a few other myths about marriage that we want to support and blow up. 
Um, remember, I'm a relationship coach. I'm a marriage coach. I, I work with couples every day, thousands a year, teaching them how to strengthen their marriage. I'm not anti-marriage. I am a, I am a realist, though. And um, to think that it's the answer, it, sometimes it's not. I mean, sometimes the answer for everybody is not to go to college either. Sometimes the answer is to get to work, right? Sometimes the answer is, um, you know, there's it needs to be customized to what you're going through. Another myth here, that your true love will automatically know what to say and do to make you happy. I'm going to go with no. I'm going to go with no on that. Um, because think about it. I don't even know what I truly want to be happy. So how on earth is my wife supposed to know that? We got to be real about what what is a realistic thing that we could be doing and a realistic uh, expectation in my relationship is the the reality is, is if I want my wife to know something, I need to tell her. If I'm too afraid to tell her, then that's just not going to work. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. You need to go by based on what we're communicating, what we're sharing with each other. Healthy marriages have the ability to share. Uh, another um, interesting you know, myth is that having kids might bring couples closer together. But <laughs> some of the latest research shows that having children actually increases uh, or decreases marital satisfaction. But it increases family satisfaction. So as a family, you're getting healthier. You like what you're doing. Things are happening. Your family life's getting better because you're having these children. But a lot of times these children are going to take your time away from each other. So the only way to actually make a couple work better after having kids together is to work on it and to put your couple and your marriage relationship first. Thank you. You put it first and then all of a sudden, bada boom, bada bing, whatever you're focusing on is going to grow. If you focus on your relationship, your marriage, your marriage will get better with children. If you focus only on your children, your marriage will probably suffer. Um, um, Differences in your marriage will ruin your marriage. Fact is not true. Differences are actually essential to a healthy relationship. Just like, you know, uh, potential I- infections and issues in our environment are better for your Im- for your immunization, for your uh, immunology, your ability for your immune system to be strengthened. You need a resistance, right? You need to have something fighting against you. The same is true in our marriages. Whenever somebody tells me we never fight, I don't think, oh, they're healthy. I immediately think, well, how? Is it that you don't talk? Is it that you don't care? Is it that you have everything exactly in common? Um, that usually doesn't happen. There's a point where you somebody has a different opinion. But at some point, differences don't kill your marriage. Actually, differences give you opportunities to get stronger and better in your marriage. Another myth is that uh, marriage means you're going to have less sex. Less sex in your relationship. But according to researchers at the Kinsey Institute, um, they basically found that couples that were married um, are having more sex and they're actually having better sex, as they would rate it, than those couples that are single. We kind of think that our single friends that are, uh, you know, engaging in sex are so much happier. But uh, 43% said that of the singles, Women who were ages between the ages of 25 and 29 reported having uh, uh, fewer uh, sex 
having sex fewer times than those of their married friends of the same age. So that's, you know, pretty interesting, pretty interesting little myth debunked. Um, Another uh, interesting thing we talked about a little bit is that happy couples don't argue. The research actually does show that uh, the healthiest couples actually do have a healthy dose of arguments. It's it's not whether you argue or not that makes the difference. It's how you discuss things that is the real key that we need to pay attention to. Uh, many people have a marriage myth belief that being married is the same as cohabitating. Not true, folks. Not true. There is a big dis- d- uh, division between those that are married and living together and those that are cohabitating and living together. And the researchers said, believe it or not, that those that are cohabitating aren't going to last as long as those that are married simply because they have a commitment. People that would choose to cohabitate might already have an aversion to getting married, and that very sign may be meaning they're less uh, willing to commit. Bing! There you go, folks. Just a few of the myths about marriage and children uh, and communication debunked for you. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll take a break. Our goal is to help you love stronger. Ah. I think we accomplished it. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. A little monkeys for you. Daydream Believer, a.k.a. Ben Wasden. Better believe it. (laughs) Do you have favorite daydreams? You know, as a kid, it may have been, you know, your pirating adventures on the high seas, you know, or hitting that home run out of the park. Today, you might just daydream about taking a family vacation or maybe just a nap. Usually daydreaming is discouraged. But our guest today, Dr. Josh Davis, argues that daydreaming has its benefits He is the author of Two Awesome Hours and a Psychology Today article uh, titled How Zoning Out Benefits Your Present and Your Future. He joins us now live from New York City. Dr. Davis, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Great to have you here. Uh, Daydreaming is is beneficial. I mean, it used to be you were just, you know, the kid with ADD that couldn't focus (laughs) or you were, you know, zoning out, maybe causing accidents. That's right. That's right. Yeah, and nobody ever encouraged uh, kids to to stare out the window more, you know, and uh, it's always always about how they need to sit still and focus. Right. Uh, Well, I mean, it turns out that daydreaming is probably there for a reason, you know, and you know what, when you look at this is kind of a rule across different things uh, psychologically that we can do. If it's something that human beings can do, there's probably a time and a place where it's adaptive to do it. Hmm. And... In this case, it turns out there's a lot more to daydreaming uh, on the positive side than we may have ever realized. Uh, you know, there are, I would say there's four, different, there's four different types of benefits that have been seen in research that I'm aware of, and there may be others, but at least these four that suggest that it's not only something that can be beneficial, but that we're really kind of making our lives a lot harder, uh, making our work our cognitive work a lot harder if we don't give ourselves the time to daydream. Hmm. And um, that, that's interesting. Yeah, we may have – it's almost like we have a moral view of what it is, right? Like it's a waste, like it's 
I, I can I it's like it's naughty. Like, don't do right. that. Focus. And yet, uh, like you're saying, it may be a disservice because humans apparently just do it naturally. So what, what are some of the benefits that we need to be that we could derive from daydreaming? Well, so one of them is um, there's one thing to understand is that uh, we have different networks in the brain that are active at different times. And one of those distinctions is that uh, in the front part of the brain, um, the part of the brain that's most different in human beings, uh, that's most important for the kinds of things that we think of as human functioning, self-control, uh, focused attention, being able to make deliberate conscious decisions, all that, that kind of stuff. Um, so in that part of the brain towards the front, we have one network that's more lateral, meaning towards the outside, the sides of the head, that is called the executive network that is important for staying focused on your goals um, and really driving towards a specific a specific end, among other things. And then we have another network that's on the medial part of the brain, meaning towards the center, the midline in between the two hemispheres, that is very important for social processing, understanding ourselves and other people and how we relate. And the thing is, those two networks are anti-correlated in most research. That is, when you see one active, you see the other less active. Hmm. So the more that one's active, the less the other is active. So it's one or the other, usually. One of the few times when those are both active at the same time is when we're daydreaming, when we're just kind of drifting, we're not paying attention to anything in particular, we're not focused hard on anything else, we're just our minds wandering. We see that those two, those two networks are, are active at the same time and can start to integrate. And so it's one of those rare times when we can be finding ways that our goals can maybe be linked up with our our ideas about ourselves and our social lives. Huh. And that's a, a critical thing for actually succeeding uh, in a congruent way with what you're trying to accomplish. So that's one. It's like, it's like operationalizing our vision. I think it goes a long way towards that, yeah. That if you've got an idea about you know, who you want to be, a vision for yourself, uh, you know, that that can then become integrated with what you're trying to accomplish. But is I guess so. Maybe explain to us daydreaming before we get to these other ones. Is it is it just when we're sitting there visioning? Is or is it really when like if I'm sitting there, um, I don't know, thinking in my head about being a pirate and taking over a pirate ship? Then it's all fantasy. Is that a different quality of a daydream than me envisioning I could be president of the United States? Right. Well, so from a research perspective, uh, the, the, the definition has been essentially that you are thinking about something besides the task at hand. Hmm. And so that could be uh, either of those as well as many other things. It could also be some kind of sort of anxious rumination or it can be thinking about something positive that's going to happen. And there's some interesting research emerging now that there, there may be differences between the two in terms of uh, how beneficial they can be. But, uh, but essentially, it's just the distinction is that you're not paying it. You're not thinking about the task at hand. But and so, what, yeah, you're right? o- yeah, you're off yeah. task. Off task, exactly. Now, being off task, though, there's a critical distinction, though, which is that we might think, okay, well, you know, I'm trying to work on, let's say, a paper that I'm writing if I'm a college student or I'm trying to work on a report, I, you know, an, an analysis I have to do, let's say, if I'm working in a bank or something like that, that... Uh, you know, you have your task that you're that you're working on, and sometimes when we're off task, what we do is we try to do something that feels refreshing or feels 
like we're making good use of our time, like checking email or reading the news or shopping online or, you know, something, something else that feels a little bit lighter. But when we're doing that, we're actually taking in new information. So we're not daydreaming. Our minds aren't wandering. We're off task, but our minds aren't wandering. Mm. We're processing new information. So the key is that there's two criteria. You need to be off task, but not tracking new information so that the mind is actually free to wander wherever it goes. And those, when you've got those two things happening, then you're daydreaming. Okay. And, and yet, yeah, you're still, you're still experiencing work. You're still, I guess, taking in data, but your brain is also kind of on a vacation. <laughs> That's right. And the technical, technical term for it in psychology research would be that you're not taxing your working memory. So working memory is, is when we're trying to hold things in mind, mm. when we're trying to keep track of information and hold it consciously in mind. So if you're just... If you're just looking out the window, for example, one of the best ways to daydream that there is, because you're just noticing things. You don't have to hold anything in mind. And it does tend to help people get off track because uh, there's interesting visual things happening, looking at other people, for example. This is interesting because uh, in uh, I teach a lot of communication theory and dialogue theory, and sometimes you need to be really good at suspending um, like what's going on in the moment and just kind of let it be and play out. And I wonder if that isn't a little bit of this too, where, I mean, I guess your working memory is still happening, but I'm able to kind of suspend my judgment of it. That's interesting. I hadn't uh, heard that connection before. It makes a lot of sense. Uh, You know, that there's, there's a lot, essentially what's happening is that there's a lot going on in the background. There's a lot of non-conscious processing, um, when we're, in fact, I, I think, you know, some estimates, and these have to just be complete rough estimates. There'd be no way to know a percentage. But, you know, I think if you look at Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow, I believe, you know, he he makes an estimate about, you know, some, you know, vast majority, I, don't, I forget the percentage, uh, of our thinking is really driven by the, the non-conscious processing. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, the, you know, I think I think just about everybody would agree who studies this kind of studies these kind of phenomena, that well more than half of of our thinking is non-conscious, right? So there's a lot going on in the background non-consciously. And it tends to be of the form of pattern recognition. So, you know, you come across a problem you've you've seen before, you don't exactly know how to solve it, but it's similar to something you've seen before. And so those are weak signals in the background, but they can come together when you give them a chance. And if you're consciously really focused, if you keep on focused on the same problem, and you keep trying to take in new information, you don't give that a chance to kind of simmer and come to the surface, hmm. those connections to occur. So I think any kind of work where there needs to be some amount of creativity, if you, if you do give a chance for some mind wandering, when your mind starts to wander, if you let it happen, then you're likely to actually be able to take advantage of that non-conscious processing. Yeah, and I guess and unleash some more creativity. And I guess, too, because it would also take you to different parts of your mind, I'm assuming, and you know, maybe bring different ideas, different angles to back to the issue at hand when you get back there. Uh-huh, and that's the second big benefit uh, from research about mind-wandering, creativity, hmm. that it's been shown to be uh, quite reliable, actually, uh, for coming to creative solutions. So what will happen is that if you're working on a problem, if let's say you're trying to figure out, you know, 
what are the topics I really need to cover, you know, this month uh, on the show? Or, you know, for me, how, how am I going to put together this chapter in the book? Or a marketing director, like, you know, what's the, what, what needs to go into this pitch to really make it powerful? Mm-hmm. You know, how are we going to build this brand? Something where there isn't one obvious solution. So that would be something creative. So it doesn't have to be design work to be creative, but something where there isn't one obvious solution. There could be many solutions. Then we need a creative solution there. And so if you've been thinking about it, and then you daydream, and it can even be just for a few minutes, and then you come back to it, you're likely to come up with more creative solutions, and those solutions are likely to be rated as more creative. Hmm. The way that that's studied is there are some very common creativity tests that can be done in a laboratory setting. For example, you give somebody an object, and you say, come up with as many ideas as you can, and then somebody else who's not... Part of the study rates that for how creative the ideas are. And, uh, and so you can get a good sense of how creative people are being. Now, what happens, though, is that we're, we, are, we, we become more creative with those things we were working on before we daydreamed. Hmm. It doesn't just make us more creative in general. Yeah. So, 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 if, yeah, so you have right, to have exactly. a problem. You have to kind of be focusing on the problem, I guess, and, and, I, and probably in deep into the problem. And then, and then I guess you can get people – I mean, this is interesting. I'm just trying to think how you operationalize this with your team out there. Then I just say, okay, let's stop the discussion about the problem for a minute and then go do some activity where they can just think whatever they want to. So that's one great way of doing it. Another way is to trust that those moments will happen later on in the day when yeah. they're going to be creative and have some way of capturing that at another time. Um, you can also – just have breaks that are where you really encourage people to just have some downtime and not be checking their email during the breaks, like where the breaks are built in just to let people kind of go get a drink of water, mm-hmm. things like that. So there can be specific tasks, there can be open breaks, and there can be trusting that the opportunities will come later. Yeah, just kind of trust. It's natural. It's a human process. And then, like you said, the, going back to the first benefit, it'll it'll engage the entire, I guess, prefrontal cortex to play with both sides of the of the the higher brain, I call it. Hmm. Right, you're gonna you're gonna get you're gonna get uh, more access to this non-conscious activity as well as more integration of some of the circuits hmm. uh, in the prefrontal cortex. I love this, uh, Josh. Let's take a break. We're speaking with Dr. Josh Davis, uh, who is the author of the book Two Awesome Hours. And uh, a Psychology Today article that we found called How Zoning uh, Out Benefits Your Present and Your Future. Zoning out, folks. There's benefits to it. Uh, Apparently, it increases your creativity. It helps you use more of your your higher kind of processing brain. Um, We'll take a break, come back, continue to discuss more of the benefits on zoning out, on daydreaming, how it really might be your friend, not your foe. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Josh Davis is joining us. Uh, Dr. Uh, Davis is the author of Two Awesome Hours, Science-Based Strategies to Harness Your Best Time and Get Your Most Important Work Done. He's also the contributor to a Psychology Today article that we're discussing, How Zoning Out Benefits Your Present and Your Future. 
Dr. Davis is the director of research and lead professor for um, the uh, NLP Center of New York and is a, is a, a writer as well on Psychology Today. Uh, Dr. Davis, welcome back to the show. Hi, well, uh, thank you. This is so, to me, this is so interesting because, again, we're fighting against the tradition. You know, grandma, everybody, you know, focus. They might hit you on the head with a ruler at school because you weren't paying attention. But apparently daydreaming, it uh, it has some serious uh, benefits to us. One, it helps us utilize our prefrontal cortex, I guess is what we're calling it, the the kind of the higher executive relating brain. Um, it also helps us increase our creativity. What are some other benefits that uh, we can derive from daydreaming? One of the other things that uh, daydreaming has been shown to be useful for is what we call autobiographical planning. So thinking about your own life, how to plan out those things that you want to achieve that are personally relevant to you. So, you know, when minds wander, uh, first of all, uh, they tend to actually wander to the future. Um, that uh, when we when we ruminate, when we just sort of drift, we tend to, we're more likely to be thinking about the future, it turns out. And this should come as no surprise, but everybody um, has, tends to think about themselves. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, I, I can remember one time as a teenager that um, I was, I forget who I must have been talking to. Maybe it was some some girl I wanted to impress, and, and I was I was talking with my mom. I was all nervous, and and she said, "Do you want to know? You want to know what they were thinking about you?" And I said, "Yeah, I do." <laughs> and she said, "They weren't. They were thinking about themselves." <laughs> you know, kind of, that's true, though, uh, huh? Lesson learned. Yeah. Yeah. So, but th- that's that's what happens when when our minds drift. We tend to think about ourselves, and we tend to think about the future. Now. Um, there are some benefits to that. One is that, on average, people do have rose-colored glasses when it comes to the future. Uh, if you've seen those Prudential commercials where they've got the Harvard professor and he's, he's having people put stickers with different colors on the, the past and the future. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and so they represent whether it's something positive or something negative. And in the past, it's, all, it's pretty evenly mixed. In the future, it's mostly positive stuff. So we imagine positive things. There's adaptive value to doing that, this sort of... This belief that things can work out seems to be useful in helping people to work more on achieving that. That we know that believing that something is possible goes a long way towards making it happen. Um, so, lots of ways in which self-fulfilling prophecies do occur in in research. Um, so, you know, with that, then uh, when we drift, when our minds do wander, those are some of the things that are most Hmm. relevant to us, that we're thinking about most. So it's an opportunity to kind of sort out, without even trying to, how you're going to get to where you want to be in your life. Um, Now, sometimes, of course, there's negative rumination, and it's anxiety. Anxiety, by the way, is about the future, pretty much. Yeah. Worried about whether something will have happened in the past, you're worried about something whether something will happen in the future. And on the on the flip side, though, then there's also sort of hope or excitement, but they tend to be about the future. So that helps us sort out how we're going to get to where we want to go. And if we're not doing that, we're very much stuck in a reactive kind of mode to whatever work is coming up. Right. So there's there's a, a third benefit of of mind wandering, and, and it seems like it's on, even on a subconscious level. If if I can see myself becoming the next thing I want to become in my life, and I can play it out, even if it's ov- overly positive, even naively optimistic, uh, I, I guess it's still teaching me on some level 
that it's doable and this is how it could even happen and this is how it would feel. And I guess that's the neat thing about our brain is we can actually experience it without even having it yet. It is one of the, you know, one of the great abilities of the human mind is the ability to imagine something that isn't present, that hasn't happened. And of course, we don't know if other animals can do it, but we mm-hmm. know that humans can. And we can think about something that isn't actually occurring in the moment. And what happens is if we can imagine the future, then we can actually achieve it more easily because, well, first of all, we can actually think about logical steps to get there. But even if we haven't done that, we're actually activating the same kind of circuitry that will be relevant to taking the action in the future. Yeah. So if I, you know, there's, and that, that's actually one of the, the strongest, best-known research-based ways of, it, of instilling a new habit is to literally, in your mind, imagine when and where, what environmental trigger is going to lead you to take the new habit. So if I'm trying to, to eat less ice cream at night, you know, then I can picture myself, if I imagine actually walking in uh, you know, after dinner, the precise new behavior that I'm going to take, and I picture when and where I'll be, I'm activating the same circuitry that's going to be relevant in that moment when it is after dinner, mm-hmm. and I choose something else instead of ice cream. Um, so, so that kind of activating of the circuitry ahead of time does increase the likelihood that we'll do it when the time comes. That is, that is, it's amazing. And again, it's just how many kids have been out in the backyard shooting hoops thinking they're going to be winning that game-winning shot <laughs> And, you know, they might even find themselves in a situation to have a game-winning th- shot. Talk about your fourth, uh, the fourth benefit of daydreaming. Yeah, so this one, this one is really fun. Um, uh, are you familiar with the famous marshmallow study? You bet. Yeah, Stanford, so, yeah. So real quick for anyone listening who may not be, uh, you know, you, give a, you, you put a marshmallow in front of a four-year-old, and you tell the four-year-old, you can have this marshmallow, but if you wait and you don't tell them how long, Right? So an indefinite amount of time for a four-year-old. If you wait until I come back, you can have this other treat that we already know this particular kid prefers. Right? Right. So it turns out some of the kids actually wait the whole time, which is 15 minutes, right? and, and end up getting the other treat. And then some kids give in at different points, and some kids give in right away. Now, that ends up being predictive of so many things. So Walter Michelle did this work uh, almost 50 years ago, I believe, and has tracked this these kids through life. It predicts things like SAT scores and marital satisfaction and job success and all kinds of things, you know, the, the, the ability to hold out and wait. Now, it turns out, though, that it's not just the ability, though. It's not just something that, that, you're, that's, that you're born with that's special about these kids, but it's something they were doing. And that's uh, that Dr. Michelle spent time really figuring out what were these kids doing that was different in the, in the two hmm. And the kids who were holding out were reframing the situation as something else. They were reframing the challenge as something besides just trying to not eat the marshmallow. And then that's what made it possible. So they were, they were rethinking what they were dealing with. So the kids who gave in right away, they were thinking about how tasty the marshmallow would be. The kids who waited, they were thinking about uh, it as like a puffy cloud that they were looking at <laughs> or a game or they were thinking about what would happen, like how much they wanted the other treat, you know, that was going to come later. Right. They had a different way of thinking about the challenge. And what daydreaming allows us to do is to rethink the situation so that it's easier to hold out for something better. And, again, it's sort of that element of being just kind of less reactive to the moment but being able to kind of 
have that opportunity to rethink so that we can hold out for something better. Interesting. So it, stra- it strengthens us, and it, it probably even makes more tasty or delicious the prize. <laughs> it does. It does. Interesting. That's right. So it really is. It's kind of a character building. It's a distraction, but it's a it's a distraction that actually helps us to reframe our challenges in life. It does. And when so what we do. So here's here's why I think it's so important to talk about this issue. It's not just that you know it's sort of an interesting aside about mind wandering. Did you know that actually it has these benefits? But if you think about what we're not getting in the ways that we often live these days, that. We, you know, you're, you're sitting in front of your computer, you're working constantly, and then you want to take a break. What do you do? You pull up your phone or you go to a different website. It's sort of this constant intake of media, mm-hmm. right? So we actually, we're, we're blocking so many of the opportunities for mind-wandering that we used to have. And oh, when we're yeah. blocking those opportunities, we're not getting this, this, this autobiographical planning this creativity, this, you know, integration of neural circuits, uh, you know, the holding out for something better. It's not that we're not getting that at all, but we're not getting as much of it, you know, because we we don't have those opportunities. So we're actually, we're actually interfering with um, some things that would really make our work a lot easier uh, if by, by, by living in a way where we're blocking a lot of the mind wandering that could be there. Yeah, it's almost like, it's kind of reactive versus proactive. Mind wandering, daydreaming is a, it seems like proactive uh, wandering versus you know being on your phone is more reactive wandering. It's it's the information. It's 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 wasting time reactively by the media coming to us versus us going out and generating using our brain to generate these other things. And so before today, did you expect you to find yourself saying that mind-wandering is proactive? Well, actually, I always have found it very beneficial to get away from my uh-huh. life that way. <laughs> no, but, uh-huh. you know, and I, and I, I do, I, I use it a lot in the autobiography sense in mm-hmm. imagining and visioning. But the, the funny thing is I still have this pang of guilt if I mm-hmm. do it too much. And I'm, I'm never sure if that guilt is justified, like am I overdoing this or if – it's just kind of socialized. <laughs> well, uh, there probably would be no way to know uh, if it's too much, but you know, you know, you can always come back to what really matters. Am I enjoying my life? Do I have work-life balance? Am I succeeding at the things I want to succeed at? You know, like, and, and if you are, then it's probably not too much. You know, so right. there's, there's uh, the thing is also with mind wandering that some of the things that are really good for it, like staring out the window. What I, another thing I like about them is that there's this, this built-in endpoint that you don't get if you go online and start, you know, reading the news or yeah. Facebook or email, you know, because there you can be lost for an hour. But if you, start, if you stare out the window, you're going to get bored. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, five minutes later, that, you've had enough. You're going to drift back to work. So you'll be back to work more quickly, usually, if you really let yourself do something that's, that's good for mind-wandering. If you stand up and just you know, take a walk or if you, you know, if you have a balcony or something, step outside and get some fresh air or, you know, something like that. Oh, I love that. Yeah. I mean, and we, we see it right here, Josh, in our offices. They're building a, a new building between uh, our building and the, the Marriott Center basketball court where BYU plays. And uh, we have students all the time, people, faculty, everybody all the time just standing there watch, looking out the window. And you, uh-huh. you, you think – are we wasting time? But you're, I mean, they don't – no one stays there for like three hours. It's a few right. minutes. And then you do kind of get bored. And yeah. okay, back to work. 
Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I would say, what I would say is that, and this is what I do say to people whenever I get the chance, if your mind wants to wander, let it. And the thing is, trust that if you just indulge in that, you'll really give yourself a chance to kind of switch off and your mind goes wherever it goes, is that you're actually probably going to spend more time on task working on the stuff that matters. Mm. Yeah. And you're, you're also engaging and exercising your brain in other ways. Dr. Josh Davis, thank you so much. Great stuff. Uh, again, go, go check out the book, um, Two Awesome Hours, Science-Based Strategies to Harness Your Best Time and Get Your Most Important Work Done. And also look him up on Psychology Today. He has a wonderful blog there called Your Mental Toolkit, where you can get many, many articles uh, by Dr. Josh Davis. Thank you so much. We'll take a break, folks. Come back, wrap up the second hour of the Matt Townsend Show. Again, trying to elevate your game, help you understand uh, a lot of the things that are going on inside your head and how they impact your life. Stick with us, folks. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, uh, if you go to Josh Davis's site, Two Awesome Hours, our last guest, science-based strategies to harness your best time and get your most important work done, you can enter in your your name on a mailing list, and then he will send you all of his latest articles, which are science-based articles about, you know, how to how to get stuff done, about how to be productive. Um, it's, you know, isn't it great how your mind works? And what's funny about it is daydreaming has always existed. I mean, Adam and Eve always used to daydream from the beginning of time. People daydream, and it's it's your brain's ability to, to kind of sort itself out and create a vision and use your imagination. It's powerful. Um, so, some do that, right? And then some just immediately jump back to technology. There's a crazy story about a man uh, in China. Chen Zitong is an ordinary guy with an extraordinary hidden talent that he only discovered last year, and it's now kind of gotten him in a little bit of trouble. He is the master of the arcade claw machine, right? So you know those machines that, like, have stuffed animals in them, and then you you have to you guide the crane, and then you drop it. You drop the claw, the, the claw and it picks up a, an animal. And, well, it seems like a, you know, it seems like a scam, you know, a useless gift. But this guy has taken it to a whole new level. He, um... He has actually grabbed a whopping 3,000 toys in just six months, (laughs) right? 3,000 toys in just six months, making him a celebrity at a local mall in China. He's so good that claw machine owners actually invite him to dinner and try to convince him to stop using their machines. The first time I played, it was last year in July, Chen told the local media. He said, I saw the machine in the entrance of a supermarket. I didn't think much of it. It was just a way to kill time. He enjoyed himself, so he kept playing whenever he visited the mall. And within a month, he got pretty good at it. So much so that people would gather around him and watch him play. The claw. The claw. Remember the claw? Hmm. This guy's so good that they're actually asking him not to play anymore. He's won over 3,000 toys. They're now his house is filled with them. They're all over the bed, the couch, the floor, the dining table, even his kitchen. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. I love technology, and yet it's supposed to, 
you know, ideally increase some connectivity, right? These phones, all the technology should be helping us get closer with those we love. So in the Coach's Corner today, I wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about how we can enable technology in our lives without disabling the family. And if the goal is connectivity, connectivity is defined like this. It's the state or quality of being connected, the ability to link and to communicate with others. So it doesn't just mean we get a good Wi-Fi signal. That That's great. That's probably the easy side of connectivity. The hard side is when you want to connect humans and make sure that we understand those around us and make sure that we listen and we pay attention. And so uh, let me give you some tools that might help your family in the age of technology and connectivity to connect a little bit more effectively and how to manage your technology use. One of the first principles and rules is look, look at your technology as a magnifying lens, not the boogeyman, right? Not the evil, dangerous, you know, cancer plague that is destroying our youth. Sure, the, it's impacting our kids a lot. But the, I, when I say it's a magnifying lens, technology really is your friend. It's not your enemy. Many would love to just sit there and blame technology for all of the problems in their lives, for the fact that their children are distant, for the fact that their kids don't get good grades, the fact that they're looking at stuff online that they shouldn't be seeing, for their overeating because they sit in front of TV or their, their obesity because they never exercise. But another way to look at technology is not just to blame it for everything, but maybe look at it as a magnifying lens, meaning what happens with technology is it's going to magnify your natural tendencies anyway. If, if you have a tendency to get a little lazy and not exercise, having technology and cable TV and Wi-Fi and Netflix is probably only going to magnify your inherent weakness. It does with me. If I love to just escape in a movie, then the technology is going to, you know, shine a light on that and grow and, and grow it and, and embolden it. So it's not necessarily the cause of your problems, but it is magnifying and exposing your biggest weaknesses. If you have a self-esteem weakness and getting online on Facebook Facebook may not just be driving and causing your self-esteem problems as you look at the neighbors who are all doing so much better than you. It's just magnifying the fact that you have kind of a natural inclination to have lower self-esteem, and that's how you use it to magnify the weakness. So make sure you're pointing that out and and focus as a family on and be real. Like Dr. Karens was saying, really look at yourself and ask, what am I doing with my technology that's that's harming me. And was the, is that not a problem if I didn't have the technology? Would I not naturally just find my way to waste that time anyway? So think of magnifying lens as as, as a, think of technology as a magnifying lens, not as the boogeyman. Another rule: get better, not busy. One of the things that um, we we spend a lot of time doing with our technology is we try to use it to just get more done. And the sad thing about getting more done is many times we spend all day doing things that we didn't need to do, that weren't even important to do. 
So instead of just using your your tools and your devices to get a lot more done, let's make sure we're actually improving. Right? Let's make sure we're actually getting better. Make sure that you actually are changing and improving, not just being entertained. One of my children um, is on his phone constantly. And we sit there and we have discussions in our house. And out of nowhere, he pulls statistics. He pulls information. He pulls very relevant lessons and, and data that I had never known. And I ask him where he gets it. And he's like, oh, I saw that on YouTube. He actually uses YouTube to go learn. He knows so much, but he's learned it on YouTube. And, uh, you know, it used to be we would learn that in school. He knows so much. Uh, he can. He just sits there, yeah, well, the sun is this far from the, the earth and the earth is this far from. And he's just learned it on YouTube. It's not enough to just use the technology to keep us entertained and busy. Let's, and even just chit-chatting and talking or finding the next great video that's moving and motivational. Not that there's anything wrong with that. But there's also a point that you you ought to be able to not have to go to your phone to escape, but instead go now implement what you're learning. Like the question I always ask uh, the people and the couples I work with, what's one thing right now, if you did it right now, would positively impact your life? What's one thing? Can you think of one thing? Let's say you've even, you've even thought about doing it for years. What's, what's that one thing? Well, look, you already know. There's something you can go do right now. Why aren't we doing that? I don't know. I'm busy. Well, you're not busy on Netflix. So what we might want to do is when we have that one thing, if we don't know how to do it, we don't know how to do it effectively, use your technology to go get ideas on how to do the one thing that you know you need to go do. Use your technology to be an alarm to get you up earlier to go do that one thing. Make sense? The goal, getting better, not just staying busy. The goal of technology is to help advance us as humans, make us more human, more humane, not just more busy. Another rule, maximize the micro moments. Research from Dr. Barbara Fredrickson, author of Love uh, 2.0, Creating Happiness and Health in Moments of Connection. She describes what she calls the power of the micro connections or moments of connection that are so important to our communication. Fredrickson's research suggests that love of another is not some constant, all-encompassing emotion we feel throughout the day, but instead love is a small micro-moment where we share a caring feeling or emotion. So when you think you love your family, loving of a family is not, that's, that's, that concept is not a constant concept because you're not constantly thinking about loving your family. That that love would be made up of micro moments throughout the day where in a loving way for a short period of time, you are connecting in and serving and taking care of your family. She argues it's the micro moments really that are the major drivers of health and can dramatically improve your use of technology. So why not use our technology to create more micro moments. Text your son, hey, do you want to go on a walk today? My son's on campus here at BYU. I'm asking him, do you want to go on a walk today? Micro moment. Hey, how how did that test go? Micro moment. 
what did your friends say about whatever, micro moments. So think of your life not just as big events. Well, we took our kids to Disneyland. That's so great. It might be better to have days full of micro moments, just little moments here and there, where you express your love, you show your love, you care. And last but not least, we need to power up our will, our willpower, right? So the final area we need to improve if we want to make our technology our servant, not our master, is we're going to have to start to to have some more willpower. And the fastest way I've ever found to grow willpower is to have some rules, some won't power, some things we just won't do. So if you want your kids to have more and more willpower with their phones, they need more rules. It sounds horrible, but the rules allow them to exercise their will and turn off the phone or put the phones away, right? Turn off the TV. And the more they have to exercise turning off the TV when they don't want to, the willpower will grow. It's, you know, it's the ability to do something you don't want to do, but you do it because you have a higher need, a higher purpose. And willpower, it's not just something we just talk about. It's something we can actually do. You could take a, have a regular technology fast where you could say every Sunday from morning till five o'clock at night, no technology. You can have a phone time when all the phones are turned off and turned in. In our house, we don't want the phones up in our kids' rooms. You might have a book time when only books can be uh, in the house, where we're only reading books. We're not on our phones. You could have exercise times where maybe once in a while you go exercise as a family. You go play tennis as a family. You go do an activity as a family, and we put the phones away. Spend some time writing letters, visiting people, goal-setting. But the simple rule is let's spend more time exercising will. And when you do that, they'll learn to power up. So the four rules, very basically, to help us connect better without destroying the family – Think magnifying lens, not boogeyman. Get better, not busy. Maximize the micro moments and power up your will. If you want more information on those, you can go to my uh, website. We'll post those on my blog at uh, matttownsend.com. We'll take a break, folks. Come back. That's the Coach's Corner. You're listening to the Matt Townsend Show right here on BYU Radio. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Myth of religion being in decline. Not, it's a myth, folks. Uh, Religion's holding steady across the globe. And um, so I thought, hey, let's give you some ideas of why... uh, the benefits or real impact that religion has in your life. Okay. Try to give you eight different ideas here. By the way, this all comes from LiveScience.com. LiveScience.com. The name of the article is Eight Ways Religion Impacts Your Life by Stephanie Pappas. Number one, religion helps you resist junk food. Does it? Because I am religious and I eat tons of junk food. But uh, in a study published in January of 2012 in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology, researchers exposed students to references of God in tests and games and compared the students who saw references of pleasant but non-religious objects. And they found out that those that were religiously cued 
felt that they had uh, more control over their their eating habits, whether they'd eat treats or not. Those that actually saw religious cues were less inclined to go eat the junk food. Hmm, interesting, huh? Uh, religion, interestingly, it, it influences your life by maybe possibly, uh, maybe even helping you lose weight. According to a study presented at an American Heart Association meeting, in March of 2011, young adults who frequently attended religious activities um, are 50% more likely to uh, not to to 50% less likely to be obese by middle age. So it's you know if you're not eating junk food, it, this religion thing could be actually helping you lose some weight. It also puts a smile on your face. Uh, people uh, that are attending you know their churches regularly. According to a published study in the Journal of American Sociological Review, said that they're more happy, and not because of necessarily the denomination or the belief, but from the joys of being social, of being uh, and joining together with your fellowship of other people on a regular basis. So you know the ability to go to church and hang out with some of your friends and people that you are in your network at your church actually puts a smile on your face. They also found another benefit or impact of religion is it actually raises your self-esteem, you know, if, by the way, you live in the right place. Uh, depending on where you live, religion may also make you feel better about yourself or by making you a part of a larger culture. Um, people who are religious have higher self-esteem and better psychological adjustment than people who aren't. Now, that shouldn't make you mad. Oh, I see. That's why I hate religion. But I, they're probably talking about places where there's a higher concentration of your, you know, religious belief. Maybe the Bible Belt, maybe kind of intermountain area in the United States. If, as uh, Dr. Stark was talking about, uh, Central and South America, where many, many, many people are attending church every single week, up to 60 to 70 percent of people in South America are attending Mass. Are you kidding me? That's amazing. Uh, interesting thing about religion is it soothes anxiety. Uh, if you're religious, thinking about God can help soothe the anxiety associated with making mistakes. In other words, believers can fall back on their faith to deal with setbacks gracefully, according to a 2010 study. Um, interesting in the study, I guess they also studied atheists. Apparently the trick doesn't work for them. Um, sad. Uh, another uh, impact of religion, it protects against depressive syst- symptoms. Depression recovery proceeds better against a backdrop of religion, according to one 1998 study published in the American Journal of Psychiatry. Older patients who were hospitalized for physical problems but also suffered from depression recovered better from their mental struggles if religion was an intrinsic part of their lives. That's according to the Journal of Clinical Psychology in 2010. A belief in a caring God improves the response to psychiatric treatment in depressed patients. Wow, that's powerful. In fact, it's directly tied to a specific belief that a supreme being, a supreme being cared for them. So the belief, you know, this isn't just a bunch of gobbledygook. It feels good to know that you have a supreme being, a heavenly father or, a you know, a God that's watching over you. Another impact religion has, according to the LiveScience.com report, Eight Ways Religion Impacts Your Life, is that it motivates doctor visits. You're more likely to go to the doctor if you 
uh, in fact, are attending a religion. Religion is linked to health in general, possibly because religious people have more social support, better coping skills, and a more positive self-image than those people who don't join faith-based communities. In a, in a 1998 study published in the Journal of Health, Education, and Behavior, um, regular churchgoers are more likely to get preventative care in the case of mammograms. About 75 percent of the 1,500 church members in the study got regular mammograms, compared with 60 percent of a sample of 510 women who were not church members. Anyway, interesting. Last but not least, it lowers your blood pressure. People who attend church often have lower blood pressure than those who don't go at all. That's weird because for me, it actually raises my blood pressure sometimes. Like when you got to teach or you got to speak or you've got to do something. According to a study out of Norway in 2011, those results um, were impressive given the fact that church going is relatively rare in Norway. But what they found is participants who went to church at least three times a month had blood pressures one to two points lower than non-attendees. Powerful. So it helps. It's helpful. And again, you don't have to be all up in everyone's face about your religion. But a couple of things we've learned from Dr. Rodney Stark, it's it's not declining. Religious attendance is holding pretty steady. Some, the younger generations, may not be attending as much, but it doesn't mean they're not believing. It just might mean they're sleeping in which I'm going to bet in the 70s was pretty common. I'm going to bet the 18 to 30-year-olds in the 70s and the 60s, even the 80s, were probably sleeping in as well. And overall, uh, many things it does do for us. If anything, man, what if it could just elevate our conversation, elevate our, you know, our acceptance of one another, our tolerance, our appreciation of fellow human beings? Huge, powerful. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. Interesting, uh, interesting research about what Americans fear most. And when you think about it, it's the fears, they're, they're very much about what you can control or can't control, right? So if I can't control something, I might be more inclined to be afraid, to want to fix it. Um, and it's just interesting. Also, the paranormal stuff he was getting into, it was also very, very fascinating, I think, because... There's 40% of Americans believe that uh, places can be haunted by spirits, okay? And more than a fourth, according to the Chapman survey, uh, believe that the living and the dead can communicate with each other. 20% of Americans believe that both aliens visited Earth in the ancient past and that dreams can foretell the future. Isn't that interesting? One of the surveys, uh, the survey also shed light on certain characteristics of people who believe in the paranormal. And Ed went over this a little bit. He said, people with the highest levels of paranormal beliefs have the following traits. Low levels of church attendance, non-white, Catholic, no college degree, female, unmarried, living in the Northeast. Isn't that interesting? They, like, they can target paranormal beliefs that, that directly. But it's uh, it's fascinating. In fact, um, I recently just found uh, a, a really interesting um, article that was talking about a dead woman. So a young woman died in an accident in China. And there's a, there's a belief, you know, you got to get married. So listen to what happened. Uh, 
three people were detained for attempting to sell the corpse of a young woman to be used in a ghost bride ritual. And what they were doing is the official uh, uh, Xinhua news agency reported that the main suspect, a man aged 72, said he had heard about the death of a young woman in a nearby village in Shanxi province and thought of selling the corpse to relatives of a single dead man. So a single dead man should be married to a single dead woman. And the the price was 25,000 yuan, is that how you say that? $4,000. Anyway, they uh they were I guess uh the main suspect and two accomplices pretended to be relatives of the woman and negotiated a sell price of $4,000 with the buyer. And while they were raiding a village tomb for the body last weekend, their plot was scuttled by villagers who caught them in the act and alerted police. The reason behind the ritual is to ward off bad luck, especially with dying while single. And the practice reportedly extends back centuries. It persists in more rural areas, but it still isn't something, uh, you know, it's, it's still a belief system. So one of the reasons your fears may matter and what uh, we were just learning from Ed Day is the fact that you might want to start taking some of your traditions, some of your values or your beliefs and just evaluating them, you know, basing them on something more modern doesn't make it more accurate, but um, it's try, try to understand the theory behind it. Try to dig a little deeper into what's going on instead of just raiding a tomb. Interesting stuff, huh? That's why fears matter. It also, those fears, by the way, make it so we see what we want to see. We hear what we want to hear. Many of the arguments that I try to help couples resolve are generally coming out of fear. And uh, if, if you want to conquer the conversation, you got to conquer the fear a bit. So also we could take in a little bit more data, right? Usually when our, we're talking to our partner, every conversation is not life or death. It doesn't need to be the thing that terrifies you. Stick with us, folks. You're listening to The Matt Townsend Show. We will be back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, have you ever thought that kids these days just want everything handed to them? They want instant results or uh, they don't know how to come up with their own solutions? Well, it's easy to think that these kids these days are different from the, you know, the kids when we were growing up. It's also easy to blame changing society, technology, innovation, and uh, education systems. But who really is to blame for how your children are behaving John G. Miller, founder of QBQ, Inc., and author of The Parenting the QBQ Way, How to Be an Outstanding Parent and Raise Great Kids Using the Power of Personal Accountability. He's joined us uh, in this interview, and he's talking about leadership in the home. Now, here's the deal. When I started the interview, this interview took place about uh, in January. Wonderful, um, wonderful experience, and I wanted to replay it for you to help you address your parenting issues. I started the interview this way. I said, we are the parents. It's how we teach and measure accountability that is going to matter in the long run. 
Completely. The the real key to this material, and I've been teaching this QBQ, the question behind the question material, Matt, in the corporate world for two decades. And, of course, 80% of my audience is our parents, and they've been saying, you know, we, we want to use this at home, but could you put it into a format that helps us tie it to the home world? So we wrote Parenting the QBQ Way. But the reason I mention that is everything we do here at QBQ Inc. out of Denver, Colorado, is personal accountability. So when it comes to mom and dad, it's like, hey, maybe we should look in the mirror and own something. And that yeah. is own our kids' behaviors, own the way they're growing and developing, own the mistakes they make. Not, not when they're 25, but, you know, we've got to be able to say this. My child is a product of my parenting, period. Mm. Yeah. It's, it's not Hollywood. It's not Obama. It's not Bush before him. It's not your local congressman. It's not your schools and churches. Is it my in-laws? It's not my in-laws. Oh, <laughs> my child is a product of my parenting. That is a pure statement of accountability. And, you know, as we teach this material, you'll find parents that will object to that. But wait a minute. What about the schools? But wait a minute. Okay, you can always find excuses for something, but the minute we do that, we've gone down that path of blame. Let's stay focused on accountability. No, I love this. And again, if the parent won't accept their own accountability for their child's for their parenting of their children, then then why should the child accept it? That's true. See, in the book, we talk about modeling is the most powerful of all teachers. Now, we all know that, but that's a phrase that's in the QBQ book, which is our business side, and then the parenting, the QBQ way book, which is the parenting side. And whether I'm a manager at work, Matt, or I'm a mom or dad at home, modeling is the most powerful of all teachers. This is not new. None of this is new. But the problem, what we see in society today is parenting that's kind of gotten off track. Now, we've raised seven kids. We have five grandkids, and we have two grandkids on the way. We're a very productive crowd yeah. over here in Denver, Colorado, Matt. <laughs> and I've got to tell you, we've seen a swing in parenting toward a very, very, what we might call, and I'm sorry if this offends anybody, weak parenting, W-E-A-K, weak parenting. And basically what we're saying is some of the parents today who grew up in the 80s watching the TV show Charles in Charge, now they have families where the child, the child is in charge. Mm-hmm. We cannot have families when the child, where the child is in charge. The child does not want to be the boss. So what does that mean? That means parents need to learn new skills, take back their families, set boundaries, help their kids make good choices, be firm, no means no, yes means yes. I could go on forever. But that's what parenting the QBQ way is all about. Now, explain to us what QBQ stands for. What is, what is the question behind the question? For, for a decade, I sold leadership and management training, Matt, and I sat in sessions with really good people, but I was hearing a pattern. Here's the pattern. Lousy questions like, why do we have to go through all this change? When is that department going to do its job right? Why can't we find good people? Who made the mistake? And I remember listening to these questions in these management training sessions thinking, there's got to be a better question here. So one day I coined the phrase, the only phrase I've ever coined, the question behind the question, and I went out and started teaching, hey, let's not ask, when is someone going to train me? Let's turn it around ask the question behind the question, the QBQ, which would sound more like, how can I develop myself? Hmm. What can I do today to learn new skills instead of blaming my company, blaming my boss, whining, playing victim, being entitled? So I started teaching the QBQ 21 years ago, back in 1995, and that's all we do at the QBQ Inc. company now. We sell training, we sell books, and we do speaking all about the question behind the question, helping people get away from victim thinking, procrastination, and blame, and start taking personal accountability, owning my life. It's just a better path. Mm. And you talk about 
uh, I guess there's myths about accountability. Like we like like that. That's a myth thinking. It's outside yep. of me than thinking I'm the one responsible for it. Well, there's two myths of accountability we find all the time. Number one is we think it's a group thing. And here's the problem. Here's the reason. Especially in the business world, we've been so trained on teamwork, we've lost sight of the individual. And that the power of one is amazing. What one person can do as they interact with a customer, it's amazing. It's outstanding what that one person can do who says, no, no blame, no whining, no victim thinking. I will solve the problem. I will serve the customer. Personal accountability is a me thing, not a team thing. And the second myth around accountability is we think it's something I hold others to. And this is the trap managers fall into, and this is the trap parents fall into. Because people uh, see our Parenting the QBQ Way book, moms and dads, you know what they tell us? They say, oh, perfect, I needed a book for my 12-year-old. <laughs> no, mom, dad, the book is not for you. I mean, excuse me, it's not it is for you. Huh? It is for you. Yeah. And for the parent to say, what can I do to learn new skills? See, that ties right into a major theme in the book. Parenting is a learned skill. I love stating the obvious because it's not so obvious. People are reaching out on Facebook. You've got millennial moms and dads reaching out on Facebook for ideas and knowledge. Oh, my gosh, why don't you go to some parents who have done well and sit at their feet and learn? That's so true. Ask questions. They, they weren't perfect, but ask, what would you do? Stop reaching out on Facebook and having the blind lead the blind. Parenting is a learned skill. There are certain methodologies and techniques and processes we can use in the home that just make a difference instead of winging it. And we just see a lot of parents, they're just winging it. And then the child ends up in charge. And then we wonder, what went wrong? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the problem with the blame game, huh? Because it, it actually, the minute I'm no longer responsible then for at least my part in the game, I don't need to be responsible for everything, but no. my part... Then and if if I'm not paying attention to that, then I'm going to keep waiting for years for the parenting bus to show up. See this right? This is what happens if, with parents who are frustrated. Why doesn't my daughter treat me more respectfully? Well, that's a bad question. Maybe the better question, the QBQ, would be, what can I do to better understand her? How can I set firm boundaries when she does disrespect me? I mean, maybe I'm enabling her, Matt. Can yeah. you imagine? Right. Or how about this? When is my teenage son going to open up and share? Well, wait a minute. That's a, that's a question that points at him. How about asking, what can I do to get to know him better, et cetera? How can I spend more time with him? There's always a question behind the question, Matt. There's always a QBQ. In the end, we must ask what we call the ultimate QBQ, which is how can I let go of what I can't control? Now, that is a life-changing question. How can oh, I let sure. go of what I can't control? But up until that point, we need to say, wait a minute, um, my son is not, excuse me. My son is not doing this, or my daughter is doing this, or my toddler is doing that, or my eight-year-old is not doing that. What can I do? Bring it back to self and say, okay, what can I do differently to solve this problem? How can I learn or acquire a new skill to help my twelve-year-old do his math homework? Yeah. And in other words, the more we're blaming, the more we're whining, the more we're procrastinating, we are not solving the problem. Right, and we're modeling for our children whining procrastinating, you know, blaming, excuse-making. I knew you'd you'd be the sharpest host I've ever talked to, Matt. Well, thank you very much. (laughs) Thank you very much, John. (laughs) You are right on target because here, number one, we're doing this bad stuff. Then number two, we're teaching it to them. Mm -hmm. Like QBQ uh, Facebook page, the other day I posted, you know, as you went off to work on Monday morning, did you model joy or did you you (laughs) teach your kids to hate Monday? Yeah, drudgery, right. Did you teach your child to hate Mondays? It's a long life, Matt, if you're going to hate Mondays and wait for hump day. 
Oh. So modeling is everything. It's so true. Is it? Is it? Um, I guess when we think about the the empowerment, I mean, this is really about accountability, making sure that our children are going to understand that they're forces in their life. They're actors. They're here to act, not be acted upon. Um, what are some of the principles you teach to, to kind of instill that? Well, from the gut level up, we need to help our kids resist the temptation to be offended and resist the temptation to be entitled. This is what we're doing as parents, Matt. We're building. We are absolutely building little adults, little children into adults, and don't we want them to someday be kids who are not easy, adults who are not easily offended, they're not entitled, they do learn to earn, they do work hard, they do contribute. So at a young age, we need to teach them, okay, your teacher's not perfect, stop playing victim. We need to teach them, okay, the coach said this or that, but I don't accept excuses at home. We're not going to make excuses at home. We've got to, through our behaviors as a mom or dad, as we interact with our child, say no victim thinking, Hmm. no excuse making. We're not entitled. We do work for a living. We do not play victim. All these things. We do uh, not get offended so easily that now we're a college kid in 2016, and we need to have a safe space where I can go and not hear any offensive words or comments, or statements, or be offended in some way. I'm not a cream puff. I'm going to be strong. You know, Matt, the Bible teaches we need to be of, uh, in the world, not of the world. The world is very much of blame. The, ver- the world is very much of whining and victim thinking. I just don't want to go there. Yeah. And I need to help my kids. And my kids are ages 33 down to 17. And we're always trying to model that, hey, let's stay out of the victim mode. Let's not be entitled. Let's learn to earn. Let's work for a living, et cetera. We could go on and on about what we want to teach our kids. It all begins at home. But the, And it seems like even if, uh, even if you are being victimized, like being bullied at school, teaching your child to still exercise their accountability where they can is, is more yeah. empowering than just playing the victim. Well, bullying is a whole different subject, but absolutely, and here's the real question to that, Matt. Here's a real issue, and it's, a, it's an issue you could spend a day on, and that is, where does bullying really come from? It starts in the home. Right. Yeah. It starts in the meanness. <laughs> meanness starts at home. The only reason those children are bullying someone else is because they've probably been bullied at home. But that's not enough of a topic discussion for bullying. We could spend more time on that sometime. Does, anyway. Talk about your wife. I mean, you have seven kids, beautiful family, and um, is your wife, like, what does she think? What does she do to to rein John in? And, and does she, because I always kind of get, if I, sometimes if I'm too strong with the kids, oh, um, yeah. then my wife's going to back me down to be softer. And and how, what part of the game does she play in, in your co-parenting with this QBQ Method. Sure. I'll answer that question a little differently. Going back, our first child was born in 83. We can still remember laying awake at night in 90, when we had four kids at that time, talking about the day, talking about what the kids did or didn't do, talking about what we did or didn't do. Matt, we are not perfect, but for some reason, 25 years ago, we really focused on the child and us and the interactions between us and what we could have done differently and what the child could do differently. There was a lot of learning going on. We read books. We had marital counseling that we needed. So we've grown together in this journey of accountability at home. And so now today, you know, I'm 57. My wife is mid-50s. Never want to say the full age of course. Yeah, right. Not of a lady. Yeah. And, And we have two teens at home. 
So we're still interacting with kids in the home, and so one day my wife's a little harder on them than I am. The next day I'm a little harder mm. than she is. We kind of ebb and flow. We make yeah. a very good team after all these years. That's great. I mean, and I think that's what you need, right? We, and we need to be able to fail and still be there for each other. As husbands and wives? Yeah. Sure, certainly. I make mistakes. She makes mistakes. I think one of the funniest parts of the Parenting the QBQ Way book, though, is when she writes, Johnny has never had an opinion he didn't share out loud. Yeah. Oh, interesting. So, yeah. The reason I mention that is I, she's very good at letting me know, John, you're talking too much. John, you're externally processing too much. John, you're driving me crazy. John, <laughs> go down to your home office down in the basement. Please get out of <laughs> here. Get out of here, John. <laughs> so after 36 years, we can really speak to each other pretty candidly. Well, but, and think about that, though, too, that how many couples, again, don't necessarily feel like they that they're accountable. They, they'd rather be a victim of their spouse's personality instead of sure. say something. And it's easy to write incompatibility on a legal document and go get a divorce. Right. My wife and I are extremely different. She's a feeler. I'm a thinker. She's about emotions. I'm about logic. It's not a gender thing. It's just the way we were designed. Yeah. We are so different. Every decision we make, Matt, she considers, how is it going to impact other people? Every decision we make, I kind of consider, how is it going to impact me or Karen and me? So we view decision-making different. We, we view our days different. We just, I'm about logic. She's about emotion. We don't match up very well, Matt. We could have years ago said incompatible and gotten a divorce, but we don't believe in divorce, and so we're together. We love each other, and we have wonderful children. Oh, that's powerful. And again, you've, you've been able to take the, the accountability advice and, and actually model it again. I, that's what I think is the key to the parenting process is the kids are watching They're paying attention, and if you're going to use excuses, so will they. Well, one of my favorite lines is, you know, I might gripe about something, but then I'll pause and say, you know what, I'm not a victim. Mm. I'm not a victim. What am I going to do now? And the kids have heard Karen, or the kids have heard Karen and me say those kinds of statements over the years. I'm nothing if I don't use my own content, but I'm human. So are there days I want to blame and whine? You bet there are. But I do have this tool called QBQ that we can come back to, and that's the power of what we teach. It's not a motivational speech. It's a practical way of practicing personal accountability, and that's why we've been in business over 20 years. That's cool. And helping businesses as well as parents. As we wrap this up, John, what would you say uh, is the one thing that, that, that any parent could kind of walk away with today? What's the one thing that is the fastest way to introduce accountable, you know, accountability to your children? You bet. My child is a product of my parenting. And there's a period at the end of that statement. It's not their friends. It's not their friends' parents. It's not your, their cousins. It's not the schools. It's not the politicians. It's not Hollywood. My child is a product of my parenting. See, until we accept that truth, we will find ways to blame. We will find excuse-making, excuses for our children, children's behavior. Until I say no, they are a complete and total product of the way I've raised them, we will never advance in our accountability. Mm. Awesome stuff. John G. Miller and uh, your wife, Karen G. Miller, appreciate you, uh, John, doing this. And again, everybody, go check out the website, qbq.com. It can't be easier than that, can it, John? (laughs) qbq.com, you're right. Appreciate it. Thanks, John, and have a great... uh, have a great time and a great, uh, great you know, launch of these books. And uh, he's been out at 20 years, folks, 20 years improving um, accountability. And, and we think about it. We hear about it in the news. We hear all the stories of people that just feel like everyone else is to blame. If you're tired of everyone else being to blame for every other problem in the world, 
then let's start at home. And that question or that statement, my child is a product of my parenting, period. You are the majority force in your child's life. And um, make sure you're playing that role. We'll take a break, my friends. Come back to our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation. Find out what's going to be up on their show at the top of the hour. Stick with us. We're almost done, but having fun. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. We talk about uh, loving families and we've got to build families. And you may even do and, and believe strongly in your family that you know, one of you uh, needs needs to stay home and be with the family and raise your family. And there's a lot of pressure to, to how do you make ends meet when, like we heard earlier, it's really hard without a dual income to make ends meet. Um, so at some point, we have to we have to really co-parent. We have to learn to, to be together as parents um, on our family issues. I see a lot of parenting issues dividing couples up. And we fight about things, we fight about chores, and we fight about discipline, and we fight about everything, right? So at some point, we need to, we need to figure out how to, how to work better together. And I wanted to give you some ideas um, that, uh, that, that might help as we, as we go through life. One idea that I think is super important is if, if it's not working in your family, if you don't feel like you're working really well together – um, as a as a partnership, one of my I, I mean, a lot of times we would just blame one partner. You know, he's not helping out, she's not helping out. But one of the things that I teach, and it's, it happens to be one of my favorite um, quotes, because just symbolically, I think it, it means a lot. It says uh, the the quote is simply that all systems reflect their creator. Okay, so if a system is really one sided then um, it, there may be uh, – the issue may not be just willingness from everyone else. It may be that whoever's creating the system has created it in a one-sided way. And an example of this is simply um, if you notice that no one else around the house helps, is there something you are doing that might be enabling others to not help? Uh, for example, have you made it so that the level of of quality – for what has to be done can really only be accomplished by you, or at least it could only be accomplished by you in the beginning. For example, how you clean a dish, how you uh, wash something. Um, is it just – have you gotten to the point that it's just easier for you to do it yourself than to not let others do it because they don't seem to do it right? Um, and so – but think about that because almost inevitably when I see somebody – who has nobody helping around the house, many times I see that same person being a perfectionist. And nobody in the house feels like they can do it to your level. They don't they, – they've been critiqued so many times. There's too much intensity about it um, or there's fear about how they can get it done. So start to ask yourself, what are you doing or not doing to enable you or your partner to not be as involved in the parenting. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. What are you thinking that might make it easier to just do it yourself rather than having your partner participate? 
what did you do uh, uh, parenting a newborn that is different now than how you need to parent your teens? I mean, a lot of times we might hand more over to the mother of the newborn because she's feeding the baby. She's she might, you know, have the baby on her hip more. So she ended up doing more. But when we move into teendom and older kids and toddlers and adolescents, things change. And so is there a way that we we can actually make that transition? Do you have certain expectations that your spouse just doesn't meet? And uh, do you keep bringing those expectations up? Do you have anxiety about uh, what needs to be done, how it needs to be done? One of my rules is whoever cares the most, whoever has the most, you know, energy, anxiety, frustration, issue about something really I think should be the owner of it. If, if, if you have more anxiety about how something needs to be than I do, then you probably ought to own it so that you can, you know, go – manage it the way you want to manage it. But what gets harder is where you have a lot of the issue or anxiety or frustration from it, and um, and you, you need to get me involved. That's where we need to start having conversations. Another rule is we got to get on the same page, right? Nothing is more uh, important to co-parenting than, than communicating and making that work where we start to have some discussions, some questions. Some things we ought to be discussing is what kinds of parents do you guys really want to be? And go talk about it. What roles do you do you want to play? Do you do you want to just we I think a lot of us just default to you know typical kind of stereotypical roles. Dad does the outside stuff, mom does the inside stuff. But I mean you may live in a day and age where those roles don't work for your family anymore. So what do we what roles do we need to play? And what are you guys actually willing to sacrifice? You might even want to create a little ranking process where we can rank how we're doing as parents in our areas on a scale from 1 to 10. Rank how well you're both doing as the the kind of parent you want to be. Sometimes when you measure it, you actually notice we're a little bit off. And then have more and more discussions about how to be and how to improve our co-parenting skills. If if we want to be better co-parents, we can do it. We just have to do it uh, in a way that um, we're actually intentionally focused on it. We don't need to. We don't need more excuses. We don't need more uh, reasons to blame somebody. What we need is. We need to put the co in it. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. It's important as a, as a couple, as a partnership, to find some time with each other. And so I've decided I'm going to put together some time savers, ways that you as a couple could actually find more time to be together. Again, you're only given so much time anyway, right? So many minutes a day, so much time. And if you're not able to find time for each other, it might be simply because you're misinterpreting or misunderstanding what time you could be using. Uh, One of my first rules, and for years I used to teach, you know, maybe a great tool is divide and conquer. You go one way, you take the kids one way, have your wife go another way. We would divide up, but then we'd be able to quickly get through all of our tasks and then spend time together at the end of the day. Well, I've decided that was some bad advice, and I'm sorry I ever thought of it. Because what I have now come to understand is maybe what we ought to do is instead of dividing and conquering, what if we tried to unite and conquer? If our goal is to have time with each other, then let's quit let's quit dividing in order to then eventually sometime down the road or later in the day be able to have time together. Why don't we actually spend more time today going and doing our 
doing our chores, doing our activities, doing our our to-do list together? What if we could actually go run errands together as a couple and maybe go grocery shopping and either do it together side by side or actually um, break off and have one of us run and get you know, the bread and one go get the milk and we meet back and but let's do it together. And then we get in the car and we can talk and we use the time together throughout the day. Sure, it might take you a little bit more time, but you would also finally have the time together instead of just hoping that uh, somehow you're going to find time at the end of a day. Another little uh, tool I might suggest is that you use some productivity apps um, my wife now is my – she's my executive assistant. She's basically my office manager, in fact. And uh, ever since she's been working for me, it's been the greatest thing ever. It's been so much better for our relationship. We're on the same page. She, we now are using the same apps with each other. And what I mean by that is she uses Google Calendar. I use Google Calendar. We can combine our lists. We can actually get our children's calendars uh, and our teenagers to put their calendars together, and they become part of our calendar. We have shared to-do lists. We have shared note pages. We have shared camera streams. So every picture she takes, I can see it. I can get access to it. We have, uh, you know, we can access each other's Amazon wish list if we want. There's just a lot of great technology out there that we can use to partner better and and to be together. So use the apps that you've got out there and, and, and take advantage of those. Another simple rule I use is to watch out for your transition times, I call them. Transition time are those moments between one activity and another. When you arrive home from work, let's say, that is what I call a transition moment. And there is time and something magical in that moment that you could leverage in your marriage. Um, After dinner, before we start cleaning up the dinner, there is a magical moment there of transition where if you would just hang on five or 10 more minutes, you might be able to have a great conversation there. When you go to bed, uh, that's a transition time going, you know, from whatever, watching a show to going to bed. That time of transition is a wonderful moment where you might be able to pick up some time to spend uh, and actually connect with your spouse. So look through your day and try to identify these moments of transition and see if you can stretch more time out of those. Another little basic uh, idea I give is to share your social media accounts. We spend so much time trying to get everything posted to all of our social media to keep up with everybody else. But what if we actually shared the account together with our spouse and we had a couple's account and we could both post to it. We could both post interesting parts of our day. It's a great, great way to connect with each other. So we're, we're doing that. But it also might give us some more time because we don't have to both do it individually. Now it's something that we can see together, do together, share together. We could even then go through our page together and see what all of our friends are doing. And it might actually bring us together. And then last but not least, let's start learning that we've got to stop. It's not just about saying no to everyone else. We have to say yes to the marriage. If you want a healthy marriage where we have time together, you got to say yes. You got to make time for it and space for it. And really, we've got to figure out a way to not just have time, but make the time valuable. Um, And so that might be a great place to disconnect from technologies and just actually have some more time to talk. But it's not enough to just say no to everything else. At some point, you also have to say yes to the marriage. This is the Matt Townsend Show, doing what we can to help you live a healthier, happier family life.
This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. I mean, when you think about depression or anxiety or ADHD or any kind of mood disorder or just other things, migraines, fibromyalgia, Hashimoto's disease, all of these things, they're they're hard, they're complicated, and we have so many people, our neighbors, our friends, our family, that are battling these issues. They're battling them day in and day out, and you don't even know it. You don't know that somebody, your neighbor, was just diagnosed with something. And, I mean, if it was cancer, we're all like, oh, that would be horrible. But you don't know that they were diagnosed with depression. And as uh, Sandra Turley was talking about, they're battling with just the idea that I've got depression. And they might, might take three or four months to figure out what that means. And instead of us all just judging these people like, oh, they're just a rude neighbor. Yeah, they never say hi. I say hi to them all the time and they never say hi. Well, meanwhile, back in the back bedroom of your neighbor that never says hi, She's struggling with migraines. She's she's not just the neighbor that's closed off and trying to avoid you. She's also trying to close off the light from her home because the light causes headaches. What if we could all be a little more accepting, a little more patient, a little more taking the place of other um, and and trying to understand somebody before we, you know, before we judge them. What if we could have more compassion of one another and maybe walk in their shoes? Oh, that's just so soft and fluffy, Matt. Yeah. Until it's you, right? And again, for some it's depression and that's going to be their cross to bear. And for others, it's a child that gets away and is struggling. And for other, it's uh, you know somebody that that harms them in a car accident. We've all got a cross that we've got to carry. We've all got a, a cross that we have to bear. Um, and yet, in the end, and it doesn't go away. And the longer you go, the more likely you are to eventually. Receive the cross if you haven't received it yet and feel the burden of it. Um, just give everybody time. Give everybody time. And if it's not you, it could be your parents you're helping through. Which is why, you know, if as you're aging and your parents are aging, right when you finally get your kids out of your house and everything should be great and now you got money and you've got age and youth still to to go have a life with your family or your spouse, then your aging parents need care. The burden is everybody's, right? And if we could just see that everyone around us is suffering silently something and be a little slower to judge, a little slower to react, um, let's get more of our self-worth, more of our... um, sense of value from being somebody who can just care. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. There's three signs I look for, and I learned about them. Um, I learned about this concept as an emergency medical technician. So 
right after uh, uh, when I was about 21, I guess, I was an EMT on an ambulance and I was certified in, you know, life support or basic life support and uh, learned all the tools and the rules and, and how to how to basically take care of somebody in an ambulance on the way to the hospital. And one of the first things they taught us is you got to check vital signs, right? Vital signs, because you need to know where your patient is. There's a very basic baseline for where your patient is, and you need to check, you know, pulse, um, respirations. If you could, oxygenation, see how well they're oxygenating. You could take a, a blood pressure, just basic signs. And the neat thing about humans is we pretty much have these very basic vital signs and then what happens is there's a very powerful um, pattern that doctors and, and hospitals use where when you come in and see them, you can say whatever you want to say about why, what you're feeling, and they'll be listening to you. But while they're listening to you, they're going to check your vital signs, right? They're going to check your temperature. They're going to check a bunch of different things. All of those are signs of something going on deeper down. And what I have found is just like we have it physiologically, we have vital signs. Emotionally, we have vital signs as well. So there's three signs I'm constantly looking for in the people that are around me. Negative emotion is a sign. There's a sign of something deeper going on. And if you see negative emotion in somebody, instead of yapping and instead of arguing and telling them your point of view, I wouldn't tell them. I would just try to understand where their emotion is coming from. So I look for negative emotion— I look for misunderstanding, and I look for mistrust. When I see those signs, I know I need to kind of get out of my agenda and get into the agenda of the other person, right? So if, if, my, if my spouse comes home and they're slamming doors, that's negative emotion. I should see that, pay attention to that. I should try to understand what's going on. Hey, babe, I can see you're frustrated. Tell me what's going on. I'm just mad because the kids took my whatever and I can't find it, and I've got to go use it right now. There's frustration. Behind every negative emotion, you're going to hear a story. People want to tell their story because they would love the emotion to go away. So what if as humans, we could just start paying attention to the negative emotion, the misunderstandings. Misunderstanding simply means when something's going on and you don't know why it's going on and there's a misunderstanding. If I'm if, if I have a, a person that's that's quiet and and shuts down, I'm going to know they have negative emotion, and I don't understand exactly why. I shouldn't just guess. Is this because of what happened last year? <laughs> I mean, last year's example of, of this same, you know, behavior may not be very accurate. So I, what I'd love to do is recognize the emotion. You seem really upset. What's going on? Share with me why you're upset. Because if I could get the story, that would increase my understanding, right? And then if I could understand the person— and not, you know, make them worse, then they could trust me. So that's what we're looking for in our relationships. Emotional management, understanding, and trust. That's the best thing I've ever learned to know when I need to be listening to somebody. When I see that they're negative emotionally, when I don't understand why and I don't understand their reasoning, try to understand it, and do they trust me to share it? Anyway, that's where I'd start working with the people I love, the people I care about. A little coach's corner for you right there. Emotional management, it's hard stuff, let alone doing it with each other. Near impossible. This is the Matt Townsend Show. 